Good evening. The sentencing of the Parkland, Florida school shooter goes to a jury. Will he get the death penalty? A call to add more justices to the Supreme Court. A street in Staten Island is named after Eric Garner. And Mayor Adams closes the gate to East River Park. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Monday, July 18th, 2022. A senior advisor to Iran's Supreme Leader Al Khamenei told Al Jazeera's Arabic service that Tehran is technically capable of making a nuclear bomb, but has yet to decide whether to build it. The advisor, Kamal Karazai, said, In a few days, we were able to enrich uranium up to 60 percent, and we can easily produce 90 percent enriched uranium. Iran has the technical means to produce a nuclear bomb, but there has been no decision by Iran to build one. In 2018, former United States President Donald Trump ditched Tehran's 2015 nuclear deal with world powers, under which Iran curbed its uranium enrichment work, a potential pathway to nuclear weapons, in exchange for relief from economic sanctions. Today, Ned Price, spokesperson for the United States State Department, told reporters this country already knows Iran has closed that window of time it'll take to develop a weapon. He called it the breakout time. We know that they have acquired additional fissile material. We know that their breakout time uh, has um, has uh, been reduced uh, significantly. But uh, this president has made a commitment that Iran will not acquire a nuclear weapon. Ned Price. Price was push, uh, pushed by reporters on what President Biden achieved during his controversial four-day trip to the Middle East. He says there were fruitful talks to extend a truce in Yemen. The president, the secretary, had an opportunity to discuss the ongoing truce in Yemen for the first time in more than seven years. We have had months of a humanitarian pause in the fighting. It's during this period that we've been able to, the UN specifically, has been able to orchestrate the delivery of tons of humanitarian assistance to parts of Yemen that have been bereft of it for far too long. And we discussed with the GCC plus three, including our Saudi partners who were so instrumental to putting and to getting the ceasefire to be put in place initially, our profound desire to see it extended once again. And then running through all of these discussions, and this includes in our in Israel, was a discussion of Iran and the challenge that Iran poses to the region and potentially beyond. Dead price of the State Department, Yemen is where a war between Saudi Arabia and its allies, backed by the U.S. against a pro-Iran government, has become the world's greatest humanitarian disaster, with millions facing hunger and starvation. And here in America, the United States of America, a group of House Democrats called for legislation today that would add four seats to the Supreme Court, lamenting an ultra-right-wing branch that has just overturned the Roe v. Wade decision on abortion rights. At a rally today on the steps of the Capitol, Michigan Representative Rashida Tlaib spoke. We all know all the history of the uh, Mitch McConnell stealing one of the nominations, as well as the number of controversial schemes behind Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Thomas. I don't want to focus on that. What I want to focus on is the fact that the American people, the majority of us, do not agree with these decisions being made. And the fact that they are asking for more representation on the Supreme Court. This is something that is incredibly popular. I cannot tell you, for folks that didn't even know about the bill, that right now they're like, wait, can you expand the court? I said, yeah, it's been done seven times before. We can do it an eighth time. Absolutely. Them understanding what is possible and them saying, move. Don't, don't hesitate. Move and act on this. We all know that right now it's not even just the right to choose to control our bodies, but what's coming. 
And I already know it's going to be communities like mine, a predominantly black community in Detroit, where over 80% of my neighbors, again, are suffering from not even having access to healthcare, quality healthcare right now. And it's now gonna be so much more difficult. We gotta make sure this very important branch of government, again, unhinged right now, very political. I just told Mondaire Jones, it's interesting to see an opinion that somehow sounds like it was a political rally. Yeah. Oh, we're not done yet. Here we come, there's gonna be more. Think about that. It is in a legal opinion of the Supreme Court. It sounded like a political rally. More is coming. So we gotta act, we gotta be proactive. I'll tell you this much, the other side would not hesitate once to do what we're about to do. And that's Representative Rashida Tlaib. Democratic representative from the Detroit area. The eight lawmakers cited recent Supreme Court decisions that rolled back Miranda rights throughout a New York gun law, gun control law and allowed religion to surface in schools, as well as the Dobbs v. Jackson women's health decision that overturned the right to abortion in Roe. In saying there was a need to add justices to the court, Representative Sheila Jackson Lee said the law is not the same as packing the court, but getting justice on a court that's been taken over by the right wing. And as a Earl Warren scholar, of someone who received an Earl Warren training scholarship, Justice Warren of the 1950s, uh, who in fact provided the lifeline of response uh, in the Brown versus uh, Board of Education, Topeka Board of Education, the kind of concept that we all have of the court. By the way, Justice Warren was a Republican. Justice Warren was a Republican. And I wanted to be very clear that we are not standing here trying to characterize the court as Democratic or Republican. What we are saying is we want to characterize the court as the last refuge for justice. And I reject at hand any comparison to the court packing of the 1940s. This is not court packing. This is a constitutional privilege that we have because there's no debate that under constitutional structure, Congress has the power and responsibility to regulate the size of the Supreme Court. And that's Representative Sheila Jackson Lee. Those three justices uh, have radically altered the direction of the court, which now has twice as many conservative justices as liberal ones. Kavanaugh replaced Justice Anthony Kennedy, a previous swing vote who had been nominated to the court by a Republican, while Barrett replaced liberal Justice Ruth Gator Ginsburg, adding to Democratic anger at GOP Senate uh, blocked former President Obama's last nominee to the court, Merrick Garland, who's now the attorney general. Gorsuch ended up being nominated to the court in place of Garland. And uh, it's in the United States Senate that the decision would finally have to be made as the bill is expected to pass the House. However, where there's a 50-50 uh, rule in the Senate and 60 votes in order to overcome a filibuster, it has very little chance despite that. Liberal Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts was out there on the steps with the Congress people saying that he would do his best. A stolen Supreme Court has stolen the rights of millions of Americans, and they're just getting started. These radical right-wing justices have already undermined justice for millions of Americans, from the frontline environmental justice communities whose right to clean air has been jeopardized, to the family whose safety from the scourge of gun violence has been undermined, to the millions of women, pregnant people, LGBTQ plus communities, rural and low-income Americans, and people of color across our country whose right to abortion care 
and privacy has been curtailed. Ed Markey, the senator from Massachusetts, in more national news, the prosecutor is seeking the death penalty for the gunman who massacred seven people at a Parkland, Florida high school. Detailed for jurors today how Nicholas Cruz coldly mowed down his victims, returning to some as they lay wounded to finish them off with a second volley. The following clips are from a video shown to the packed courtroom today. But the following clip is very disturbing. So if you don't want to hear that, turn back in about 30 seconds. That was just a short clip from the extended uh, videos that were shown today. Some parents wept as prosecutor Mike Satz described in his opening statement how Cruz killed their children at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School on February 14th, 2018. Others sat so quickly, their arms crossed over their chests. One woman who lost her daughter fled the courtroom sobbing, holding a tissue to her face. Satz said from the prosecutor's perspective, there were plenty of reasons for Cruz to die. This defendant's goal-directed, planned, systematic murder, mass murder of 14 children, an athletic director, a teacher, and a coach. These brutal murders occurred at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, and it happened on February the 14th, 2018. Three days before these brutal murder, this massacre, the defendant in this case made a cell phone video on his cell phone. And this is what the defendant said. Hello, my name is Nick. I'm going to be the next school shooter of 2018. My goal is at least 20 people with an AR-15 and some tracer rounds. It's gonna be a big event. And when you see me on the news, you'll know who I am. You're all gonna die. Ah, yeah, I can't wait. Ah, yeah, I can't wait. Cold, calculated, manipulative, and deadly. And that was Prosecutor Mike Satz today at the opening in his opening statement about uh, the trial. The it's not really a trial; he's already been uh, pleaded guilty and uh, well was convicted and admitted to the crime. Uh, right now, they're battling the uh, possibility of the death penalty, which in Florida uh, he could receive. Cruz, 23, pleaded guilty in October to murder and attempted murder, and is contesting only a sentence. The trial, which is expected to last four months, was supposed to begin in 2020, but it was delayed by the COVID-19 pandemic and legal fights. And in another story, not quite as heavy, Steve Bannon is headed to trial on two criminal charges for his failure to comply with the House January 6, 2021 investigation, 10 months after receiving subpoenas from the select committee. Proceedings began today with jury selection at the federal courthouse in Washington, D.C. 22 potential jurors have been found and the 12 that make up the jury and two alternates will be selected tomorrow morning. Opening arguments will begin soon after. The media caught Bannon 
who was at one time a chief advisor to the president and a uh, confidant to President Trump right inside the White House, often within the Oval Office itself, despite very few qualifications for the position. He had this to say as he walked up to the courtroom, courtroom door, courthouse door. Sir, does this move your appearance in the committee? They're all working that out. Sure. Thanks for the question. You doing good today? Yeah, it's a fun day. It's a fine Navy day. You think we're still okay? How you doing, guys? Thanks for showing up. The kickoff to what is probably going to be quite a colorful trial next few days. The polarizing longtime Trump ally has always been at the top of the January 6th witness list for House investigators. But Justice Department prosecutors say the trial is intended to punish Bannon for noncompliance with the subpoenas rather than coerce him into sharing information. The shooting of Jalen Walker, who was cut down in a hail of gunfire by police in Buffalo, New York, uh, after he was pulled over for a minor traffic infraction, uh, has finally come back from the medical examiner who said that, uh, well, it was said that 90 shots were fired in the direction of the fleeing man. In fact, Dr. Lisa Kohler, who's a medical examiner for that county, actually, outside of Buffalo, that uh, Walker was shot. Actual bullets had touched him were less than that, but still quite significant. Jalen had 46 gunshot wound entrances or graze injuries. Some of those wounds are on extremities. I can't say for certain whether wounds passed through an arm and then into the body or not. There is that possibility. So I'm, I can't say anything different than we've got 46 entrance slash graze wounds. Jalen Walker's death was due to blood loss from his internal injuries. The cause of death ruling was multiple gunshot wounds. The manner of death was ruled homicide, shot by others. Our ruling of homicide is a medical ruling, meaning death at the hands of another, and is not a legal conclusion. And Jalen Walker's attorney, Ken Barno, had this to say outside the courthouse. Stands out to me, and I would like to think stands out to everybody, is that an unarmed black man was shot 46 times. Jalen Walker was shot and has 46 entrance wounds in his body and died of blood loss from those multiple, multiple gunshot wounds. I don't know how that wouldn't surprise anybody to actually hear that. Ken Barno, he's an attorney uh, for Jaden Walker, who was shot in the uh, terrible dispute, uh, the uh, shooting that we just heard about, which uh, one of uh, all too many. Um, you might remember it was a song by Bruce Springsteen, 41 shots, about the 41 shots uh, years ago here in New York that were uh, entered the body of Amadou Diallo. You might remember that 41 shots. This is 46 out of 90 bullets fired. And a stretch of the Staten Island street where Eric Garner died after a police chokehold was renamed Saturday in honor of the man whose cries of I can't breathe spawned the national Black Lives Matter movement. There were also protests in uh, support of the family. Here's some sound. Our duty to fight for our freedom. It's our duty to fight for our freedom. It's our duty to win. It's our duty to win. We must love and support each other. We must love and support each other. 
The victim's mother, Gwen Carr, joined by family, friends, and elected officials, watched as the Eric Garner Way sign was unveiled one day before the 8th anniversary of his July 17, 2014 death during an arrest for selling loose cigarettes outside 202 Bay Street. In fact, uh, friends and witnesses claimed for years there were no loose cigarettes being stolen, and the only thing that uh, Eric did was try and break up a fight moments before police who were over 100 yards away at the time and were uh, was shown were really incapable of seeing anything that was going on, had moved on the man. Uh, it turned out that Eric Garner, uh, there was a picture with his name on it in the precinct, and it was uh, they called it a book, right? Uh, there was the kind of police book they keep of pictures where they were clipping out of newspapers and from uh, – whatever printed off of Facebook type pages or from their own photograph and they put this book and it was sort of like a, a perp book and you would look through it and then you would look for those faces to make arrests all day and it turned out that Eric Garner's name was in that book so when the officers who uh, who were involved in his death came out they were already primed to go after this guy and it turned out that Eric wasn't even selling cigarettes in fact we heard from folks on Saturday who laid out numerous inconsistencies and inaccuracies that have been told by the media over and over again since that day. Number one, Eric was not selling cigarettes. Number two, Eric had just broken up a fight. Number three, Officer Pantaleo used a chokehold, which is prohibited by the NYPD. And number four, the New York City medical examiner testified that the lethal cascade began with the chokehold. Thank you. Number five, Eric said, I can't breathe 11 times and was ignored by the NYPD. Number six, Officer Ramos and Ferlani heard Eric say, I can't breathe and did nothing to help him. Number seven, the NYPD Lieutenant Bannon texted, not a big deal when told that Eric may be dead on arrival. Number eight, Officer D'Amico lied on official reports and falsely charged Eric with a felony after he was dead. While Officer Daniel Pantaleo ultimately lost his job after applying the hold, no one ever faced criminal charges in the videotaped arrest. Garner family members said the lack of accountability still rankled and were still agitating for prosecution. A spokesperson for the family said some of those same words and went on to also uh, memorialize uh, Eric's daughter, Erica, who died of a heart attack at the young age of 27, she says, because of the stress of her father's death. Eric and his case really changed my life. Eric was 43 when he was killed by Officer Daniel Panaleo, right? We don't believe the police should live in, in silence or in, in, well, actually live in silence, but they shouldn't be anonymous, right? So Daniel Panaleo doesn't get to just hide. So that's his name. And really, it took us five years of hard work with his family to get him fired. And so to me, I came out today. I live in Queens, but came out because Eric, again, changed my life. And um, his mother is a wonderful person and his family's dope. I love that folks still come out here, still honor him and still uplift Erica, who died of a heart attack when she was 27 years old um, due to a lot of stress and complications trying to get her father some justice. Several other mothers whose children died during police interactions showed up from Maryland, Utah, and Georgia in support of Carr, gathering opposite the beauty supply business where Garner was taken into custody on the sidewalk. Garner, who was 43, died after NYPD officer Pantaleo applied the chokehold during his arrest. The cell phone video of the incident, which went viral, captured Garner declaring, I can't breathe at least 11 times. More local news. The city 
has officially completed the first part of a major resiliency project that is transforming a long stretch of Manhattan's east side, reopening a popular park with a newly installed movable gate that is supposed to stop flooding from storm surges. The new 45-ton, nearly 80-foot-long gate at Astor Levy Park will be closed when the city is forecasted to receive major surges of ocean water from coastal storms. The gate rolls on slowly moving wheels, taking a full five minutes, locking to lock into place and block off the southern portion of the park, which opens onto East 23rd Street from potential flooding. Astor Levy Park is the first of five parks being redesigned or rebuilt for the $1.5 billion Eastside Coastal Resiliency Project, which was set to provide flood protection for the area, but came under tremendous opposition in the neighborhood. Um, it could be tested out. Uh, many said that the destruction of a thousand trees in that park was not worth any uh, safety gains from a project that really uh, uh, it's really very little known about how climate change and global warming will affect New York City. And it's sort of jumping to conclusions in a way to begin that process before people are ready. The mayor didn't have those doubts as he spoke in support of the project earlier today. We know that this Eastside uh, Coastal Resiliency uh, Project is one of the biggest. It's an amazing achievement of human feet. And this is phase one of this massive plan. There are more phases to it. The goal is to protect lower Manhattan. I remember as we saw the hurricanes uh, moving through this area, the flooding that impacted so many people. Uh, this is costing taxpayers dollars, but it's a real win. $1.5 billion uh, climate adaption uh, project is the single largest urban climate adaptation project in the country. And then Adams did what he said was his favorite part of the job, pressing the button. 70, 79 uh, feet long, 45-ton gate is the second installment of 18 protective barriers that can be deployed when a hurricane or storm surge is headed our way. We're coordinating with Office of Emergency Management to make sure we have a clear coordination to deploy the resources that are needed, and th this gate is one of the resources. Uh, once emergency officials makes a call, the deployment of this gate will take place, and we're going to demonstrate that in a few moments. Uh, that is one of the best parts of the press conference. I'm looking forward to hitting that button and seeing that gate move. And then the mayor didn't just talk about this one big, huge $1.5 billion project the city is funding. The person who is head of the agency that's actually in charge of the construction has moved on to uh, be the first deputy mayor under this uh, this mayor, which I find interesting. The uh, other thing that the mayor talked about was Penn Station and the huge development project that uh, the city is signing on with Governor Hochul that would – lead to the complete restoration of the Penn Station area. Unfortunately, that would also lead to thousands of small businesses being displaced. The project is based on the idea of uh, large sums of money being given in the form of tax incentives to the builders, and that was brought to the mayor's attention. He had this defense. We have to get it right. And my conversation with the governor and the uh, tax incentives 
is going into other areas as 100% of the improvements to streets, sidewalks, public spaces, and other elements of the public realm. 100%. 50% of improvements to transit infrastructure, including underground concourse and subway entrance. Some would like to say, well, we're just giving rich cats tax breaks. No, they're going into improving the infrastructure. And when you start dealing with that infrastructure, it's cost money. And we're saying with those tax incentives, you have to improve the infrastructure, the much-needed infrastructure. And we're excited about the project. No loss of local property tax revenue. The mayor was talking about the Penn Station project, which is opposed by many in the neighborhood because it would be using the city's and the state's power of eminent domain to actually seize properties that are being used by people and owned by people right now who might not be in favor of giving up their tenancy in those areas. Another issue that has been dogging the mayor has been that of the District 75 schools, which are those that uh, handle people uh, who've been marked as needing special education uh, programs, of which uh, there are thousands in this city. Uh, It came out that the District uh, 75 schools are maybe less than academically stringent. In fact, they said many of these students were found smoking pot in hallways and uh, hanging around and not bothering with classes and acting out all over the place and that very little education was done. The mayor said that there's a reason for that, and he called it the inequality and unequal funding that has gone to the poorer communities of the city. District 75, District 79, systemic problems. And the problems are not only in the school, because if we believe uh, taking those children and only doing academics, then we're not going to hit the target. Some of those children are dealing with mental health illnesses. They're coming from backgrounds that are extremely challenging at home. And we need to zero in again. That is why I say we must de-silo the system. I need my homeless shelters employees to be part of it, our mental health professionals. So it's a holistic approach, and that is something that Chancellor Banks is clear on. How does that help a teacher kind of address those issues? A teacher identifies a a child that comes in every winter with a windbreaker on. Something's wrong with that. You know, how are we finding out what's happening to that child at home in 20 degrees weather if we're just going to allow him to sit in that classroom with the windbreaker? Let's find out what's happening to him at home. And that was the mayor earlier today. District 75.